back, my friends, to the AA Recovery Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Today's show features Ray O., a man I met when he first came to a men's meeting I attend more than 12 years ago. Ray's difficult road to sobriety was paved with many failed attempts to get sober over the years. Each attempt was thwarted by the belief that his situation was somehow different than the people he met in six different treatment centers and sporadic AA meetings. The similarities of his loneliness and wanting to fit in were eclipsed by the differences he saw in his social standing and material advantages he enjoyed via his family of wealth and privilege. Each alcoholic debacle he encountered over the years, such as totaling three new BMWs and facing multiple DUI charges, was met by his parents' earnest yet enabling efforts to bail him out of trouble. After each extrication, Ray's half-hearted commitments to sobriety were accompanied by fabulous business opportunities that were viewed by all as some kind of antidote to his worsening alcoholism. Though he did quit drinking, he continued to use marijuana, and his behavior didn't change at all. The resulting downward slide, unaided by family help in the end, brought Ray both business ruin and ruptures in all of his relationships. He finally came back to AA, and, though he encountered a few more slips along the way, he got a sponsor and worked the steps, and was finally able to claim his last sobriety date in 2009. The gifts of sobriety have been many for Ray over the years, and, most importantly, they've been gifts of similarity shared with his fellows in the program. Instructive, too, have been the severe challenges he has faced, including his battle with a form of lymphoma that most people don't survive. Through it all, Ray has developed a deep love for the program and an unwavering commitment to service work. Especially during the COVID pandemic, when his comorbidities made it impossible for live meetings, he has been instrumental in setting up and managing a number of Zoom AA meetings around the country. Thankfully, his is the first phase of recovery that many new AA members encounter when they log on to Zoom for their first meeting. I'm grateful to have Ray in my life and appreciate all he does for our AA community. I think you'll find his story to be both encouraging and illustrative. So settle in for the next hour or so while you enjoy the inspiring words of my good friend and AA brother, Ray O. Ray, recovered alcoholic. Hi, Ray. I'm really glad we're able to do this in person. I've had the interest of hearing your story and talking about your recovery for a long time. I met you at Outpost. Right. It was this big, huge group, this huge room. Mm Mm-hmm. And at three years sober, I mm. felt like a newcomer, really. Yeah. And there was all this just incredible sobriety, so many titans of, um, you know, of use in AA. Mm-hmm. And so it was intimidating. And yeah. I met you because you were at the door. You met me the next week that I came back. You knew my name. It meant so much to me, but I've seen it with other guys. Um, and that's a big deal. It was a big deal for me. And I'm sure it ha- I- I- I've heard other people say the same. You came in at, into that meeting at three years, but when did you first come into Alcoholics Anonymous? What's your original sobriety date? So my first exposure to AA was in 1993. Uh-huh. Okay. So my sobriety date this time is April 16th of 2009. Okay. So if you do the math, it, 
Okay, so 16 years. Didn't stick. I'm not a one-chip wonder. Mm. The first exposure that I had, you know, I I started drinking and it Mm -hmm. started to become an issue Mm -hmm. when I failed out of college, basically. Mm. I got... You know, my, my GPA dropped to a 1.7. I dropped to three, <laughs> three classes. I failed them all. And my oh. parents were, you know, were like, you're coming, you're coming back home. And by that point, it had gone from weekend drinking to, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and mm-hmm. then, you know, Monday night football. And then, you know, it had become an, an everyday thing. Was this a carryover from high school then? You went right into college with that, with that way of doing things? You know, for my generation, it was, I started late and, and mm-hmm. I did not start drinking with the intention to go get drunk until I was a junior in high school. Yeah. You know, I come from a family that was, um, it wasn't that there was no alcohol, but it wasn't that there was a broken home. It wasn't that there was raging alcoholism. What I was exposed to, I was an altar boy. Fortunately, you know, I have a good experience to report from that in that I had a grandmother that was very saintly. My mother and grandmother have what I call a loving heart, you know, that I have. And so I spent years trying to hide the fact that I'm a a nice guy. I'm a good guy, right? (laughs) You were trying to hide that fact? Oh, yeah. So, I mean... I was a person, I, you know, I took pride in my grades. My dad is a computer software engineer, mm-hmm. and so I had a computer very early. Oh. It was a great world yeah. up until junior high. And then I found out that, you know, girls were, were far more attracted to the, you know, the guys <laughs> that, that had a little, little rough edge to them. It's where my drinking story starts, actually, because right. that became of more import, you know, uh-huh. being accepted, being... Yeah. Um, you know, being a part of the cool crowd. I remember, I remember this. This was in high school, you know, starting to go to parties where there was drinking, where there was a keg. That just was never on the table. It was shared with me that we don't do that. So looking back at your childhood, what was the messaging that was going on in your family of origin? There was always drinking and partying. Yeah. But it it was always kind of a slap on the hand that that's not for you. You don't do that. I have a big extended family. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older, that that became an issue. What I did see in here, you know, my father was one of the original founders of a company here. And so we were removed from a lot of some of the other family members. And there was always a cautionary tale. You know, this person is drinking or or smoking or Mm -hmm. or doing whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Don't be like that, so to speak. It was really just the messaging. What became more important to me, you know, was that acceptance. I always felt different. I always felt like I didn't belong, even in crowds, and even amongst family. It's, you know, I think there's an ism, I believe. Looking back and doing step work, you know, I can see how I reacted to things, mm-hmm. taking things too personally, too sensitive, mm-hmm. being overly concerned about what people think or thought. Your father, if you started a company, can I assume that socioeconomically you guys were in pretty good shape? Yes. And we were. We were kind of looked at as the the people of privilege and there was jealousy and I always felt like I didn't belong. We were the only black family at the country club Hmm. and it put us in a position to you know, we traveled, we, we went all the places that you can think of. We skied mm-hmm. as those things met in high school, you know, where I started to want to be accepted. What I saw was the people that drank mm-hmm. were people that were, you know, the cool kids. I was far more concerned about being a part of, of that crowd. So I played tennis uh-huh. and it was almost like, you know, I, I, I want to play basketball. 
right? Because that's a little bit cooler. Yeah. So I started hanging out with some of the athletes, and you know, when a cup got passed my way to drink, I was just like, oh, I don't like how this tastes, but if this is what it takes to be cool, it's what I'm going to do. The first time that I made a decision, I'm getting drunk tonight. Huh. It was my first like real heartbreak breakup. I remember being in my room and I went downstairs and I got a four pack of Seagram's wine coolers, dr- you know, drinking my sorrows away, yeah. so to speak. Huh. And so at a certain point in high school, I shifted this group of people that I grew up with that typically, you know, most of them had the same values as my family. Uh-huh. And I started to hang out with a little more dangerous element of people. Uh-huh. And their way of having fun and drinking, it was not a keg party, but it was, you know, a lot harder stuff. That f- The first night that I got drunk, it was not pretty. Now, this wasn't the wine cooler night. No, wine cooler night, there was a little buzz. You a know, buzz, like, yeah, okay. But, yeah. but the, the, the first time I got drunk to where yeah. there was this zing, and I remember laying in, a, you know, this girl's lap that had to drive my car home, and I'm, you know, singing or <laughs> babbling on, and, and she's just rubbing my head, and I threw up, and... And, uh, and I couldn't wait to do it again. I became cooler. I became uh, funnier. I was this, you know, skinnier kid that played tennis that, um, you know, was desperately trying to rebrand himself. Basketball player. Yeah, exactly. Alcohol helped me do that. Then it became, okay, we're getting drunk this weekend. It started to be a deliberate choice. I went straight into the fast lane with this group of guys that had, had been drinking for a while, had been smoking, you know, uh, and, and doing some other things. These were the guys your parents were just like, you know, who is that that you're hanging out with? I went from, you know, being an extraordinary student. The first time that my grades ever suffered was senior year. So when you got to college? The first semester of being in school, you know, there was a C and, you know, a couple of Bs, but it was still, it was respectable. It was a decent, you know, report card to come home with. And, you know, getting a decent report card, on the surface, it looks like... Everything is still okay, oh, but, but starting that semester is when the, the, you know, the drinking elevated and escalated to be away from, you know, parents that were, to be fair, you know, there, there was always accountability when you're going to be home, who are you with, right. what are you doing? And so mm-hmm. there was trouble and now the, the guardrails are off mm-hmm. and I don't have to go to class. And what I found is my alcoholism, I gravitate towards, you know, the people that are trying to do bad. That's where the girls were. That spring semester is when things, they started to take their nose down. I smoked a green substance for the first time that semester. And I remember what that felt like, where I was, who I was with. And Uh um, it was that same kind of discovery of... Wow, this is how I want to feel. Did it match up to the alcoholism, to that feeling? Oh, I did. Absolutely. It, it augmented it. And then, then that made the desire elevated and escalated. And so, yeah. you know, in college, everyone was drinking. We would go to keg parties. There was kind of a, there was a pride yeah. in saying, you know, mm-hmm. I can drink. And, mm-hmm. and I remember going to a party as a freshman and they, and they put the keg in your mouth. Oh, yeah. To see how much you, mm-hmm. you know, you can drink. And, and, um, and when I saw that that impressed, you know, then that became, you know, kind of a goal. It's like, okay, you, you like that? Well, you know, let me show you how much I can drink. So what's ironic about that, Ray, is that you're having that impact on women who are drunk themselves. So they're, <laughs> <laughs> they've right. got some impaired judgment going on there exactly. as well. Yeah. So, you know, there are consequences to that, especially when you're where I was. School and preparation for life started to get in the way of my drinking. 
Really? Uh, and that's really what it boiled down to was that I don't want to go, you know, I don't want to do that. So then it was, I was, I was starting this golden internship. Like in the field that I was in, there, there couldn't have been a better opportunity for me to do. Yeah. So when you're that age, though, I mean, you think that you can do both, right? You're looking at the internship and thinking, I'll do that during the day. And you're looking at the drinking and, and, and. Man, Howard, I wish it was that responsible. No, it wasn't. wasn't. <laughs> I wish it was. I wish, I wish that I was that responsible and could have multitasked. But it didn't did, work. Huh? Not what, at all. What, what happened instead? It was, there was too much work involved in being sober. So uh-huh. that started this pattern to where I started to push healthy people out, out of my life. Hmm. And all of my friends became like-minded people that wanted to drink. Mm-hmm. And it was just a recipe for disaster for me. So as I'm in this internship, yeah. I was just like, I don't want to do this. I suffered through this internship mm-hmm. through that summer. That, that was the, the turning point. So if I look back on it, this is when I, I, I should have been able to say there's an issue. There's a problem. Mm. So I've got this BMW. I'm the man. I'm driving around. And that allowed me to be in circles that I wasn't invited in before. It, it just, you get, I was treated differently. And it wasn't that we, you know, we didn't go from rags to riches. It was just that now it was that particular status symbol, so to speak. Did you seek that out from your parents? I did. You did? I did. Well, after, after, you know, he's gone to this different level. Yeah. So after your dad becomes a man of wealth and resources, you tapped into that at some point. Oh, I used it against him. I mean, I basically was just like, what's well, not fair? You know, my sister and brother get to, you know, they moved into, you know, a big house. Yeah. And for me, it was something that benefited this character that I was creating. And that was really what I'm very clear about now. I was far more concerned about what you thought about me and what yeah. I looked like to you than what was good for me, than what was, you know, edifying for my career. Yeah. And, um, that's pretty common though amongst most alcoholics I know. I think it was certainly that way for me. It's like what you think about me is more important than what I think about me. And all the advice you get over the years of, you know, people aren't really thinking about you all that much, but the illusion is that they are. And especially when it comes to material possessions and that, that BMW, uh, making a statement to the world that here's a guy who's successful or whatever else. And especially if people knew about your dad's mm-hmm. uh, business success, they might just immediately attribute that kind of success to you, oh, yeah. too. And so it's very easy to be who you're not yep. when you've got all those trappings around you, isn't it? And then impressing people I don't need to have in my life. Wanting the appreciation and approval of people that, you know, once that's gone, they're gone. Yeah, you wouldn't choose to be around them. Exactly. And, and so... It's an addiction to validation almost as well. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. What happened was I'd started to drink and drive, and that was not a new thing. Thank God there's no one that I hit. Um, There were some close calls. So we were racing, um, and I wanted I needed to go to the ATM. And so I pulled into the parking lot to use the ATM. There was this curb. And I remember I hit it I hit it hard, and, and it was just one of those things where it was like, boom. It was just this used, ugly, loud scrape, you know, Ooh. and the car kind of goes up on the other side of the curb. And then I'm able to pull off of it, go to the ATM, get some money out. And then I'm driving back to go see this, this, uh, this girl. And so there was right. a gas station right on the corner, and there's some guys at a bus stop. And they're pointing at my car. So I was just like, you know, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for the compliment. And what was going on is that my car was on fire underneath the car. So I pulled into the gas station and this is where God was 
I never called this girl. I would just show up at her apartment. Yeah. Uh huh. And something made me pull over to, you know, let me call her, make sure she's there so I'm yeah. not wasting my time. And uh -huh. as I get out to use the pay phone, uh -huh. this is pre cell phone, the guy's like, dude, your car's on fire. And so what I had done is ruptured the fuel line. And there's my green BMW going up in flames at this gas station. And it burned up in front of my eyes, right? Fire department came. I had no idea how that fire started because I'd gotten a radar detector installed yeah, uh -huh. and a new radio. And my dad went and I allowed him to make that conclusion. And he went and gave the stereo people hell and this mm. place that in, you could my son could have died and all these different things you know and and um so you let him believe that you oh, never yeah, absolutely. came you never came clean nope. about that and, and at that time you know i became a liar to do what i needed to do i had to say what i needed to say you know that was a, that was an indicator that things were going to get bad i got another bmw unfortunately <laughs> and that one met a similar fate but when i got the second you know, new car. This is when I'm in school and other people started to make comments. You know, he's never going to class. He's always on, you know, he's always drinking. And then it, it went from we're drinking to have fun. And it's like, and, and smoking and just, it was just, some, I need this, you know, like I, I, yeah. I don't think that there was ever a period of time like where I wanted to stop or I tried to stop. It was drinking was what I did. And were, were you able to find a crowd that had the, a like mindset? Absolutely. And, and that was, you know, there, there were people along the way, yeah. like friends of mine I grew up with and other people that were kind of like, man, you're sitting on a lottery ticket that you won't cash in. Huh. There was all the, everyone was just like, you have, you have everything that you need yeah. to succeed yeah. and you're choosing not to. Right. And so that, the thing with, you know, when I started to tell people, I'd, I don't, I don't want to go into TV anymore. I don't want to do the broadcasting anymore. As I've, after I've filled out and I'm, I'm back here in Houston and, and I'm going to school mm -hmm. to college here, it just went to the, another level, drinking every day. So was, were you enabled then? Absolutely. You know, and, it, and I feel that I, I was a benefit of privilege. You know, like there's, there are people that, you know, you make one mistake or some certain people only have, you know, one or two mistakes in them. I remember that morning getting up, drinking, First thing in the morning, I was going to the record store. I was trying to get off the freeway to get to the service road. And for whatever reason, I missed, well, for whatever reason, I was drunk, right? I mistimed it and I hit the wall. There's no reason that the car shouldn't have flipped over, like mechanically and engineering wise. Um, and so I'm in a convertible. I didn't have a seatbelt on. And I just spun around several times on the ground and came to a stop. It had to be God. And so, you know, the people that came, they got out and they were just like, you know, are you all right? And I was, I was so drunk that I started, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm good. And I started offering beers to people. That's how drunk I was. While your car is wrecked. There's a record driver that comes and was just like, hey man, let me take you off the freeway for the cops come. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, mm, uh, you know, and I think it was maybe a cry for help. Yeah. The, the cops, so the cops show up and they're just kind of looking at the situation and, it was just like, you know, I, if I were you, I just wouldn't take the breathalyzer just. And I, I think that that was kind of that, that was that was the beginning of what the privilege is, because what he was saying is, you know, like, hey. You know, you seem like a good kid from a good family, just. You know, call a lawyer, basically, so you can get out of this trouble. So I go to jail first time I'm going to jail. And I remember my mom in tears picking me up and um, they were concerned because I'd been depressed about you know, being out of school. Right. And, and that's when my, my drinking upticked. And that was the mm -hmm. first time that I'd been to a psychiatrist because mm -hmm. 
And so they called the psychiatrist who was a friend of the family. And, and I ended up in my first treatment center. I, I vaguely remember, you know, my first meeting, but I do remember mm-hmm. that after coming out of that, that I was like, well, maybe there is an issue. When I looked at what I'd done mm-hmm. and I saw the car and I, you know, it was just like, I, I entertained it again, connections. Right. And, uh, and I remember going to that treatment center and I was in there with, you know, at the time, NBA players, yeah, everyone yeah. would recognize. Yeah, sure. And so that was my first, you know, introduction to treatment centers. And I would end up being in far less bougie treatment centers later in life. <laughs> um, it, something broke through, you know, like I saw and could feel more that I could see it in you guys. Right. Because we were, we were bused to, to meetings all over the city. Once I got out, there was the mandate, you need to go to meetings, you need to get a sponsor, you need to do these mm-hmm. different things. Mm-hmm. And so it became a cycle. That was the beginning of, I get out, family's encouraged, parents are encouraged because I'm, you know, I'm doing these different things. And they're like, you know, I'm going to meetings, I get a new car, mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm going to meetings. And I would learn what to say. Mm-hmm. And I'm backing out of the door. Wow. So I can go back to doing what I was doing. So you're backing up to the cliff every time. And this is what it boiled down to, Howard. I was going to prove to you all that I could drink like a normal person. The huh. big book is very clear. The obsession of every alcoholic is to prove that, that, that he or she can drink like a normal person. Yeah. I refused to concede to my innermost self uh-huh. that I was alcoholic. And it was just simply, I made a wrong turn. Yeah. And so then I started the cycle of, okay, no more of this. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? No more tequila. In fact, at a certain point, no more hard liquor, yeah. just beer. And I would run these experiments and they would all fail. And so then it would start this other cycle of things would be decent and okay for a while. And I'm, you know, either I'm, I'm going to school in token right. or I've gotten a job, you know, and I'm doing something and inevitably something would happen to where I would, there would be an event or whatever it was. And I would, I would drink too much. Then DUI started to show up. It became this cycle of another incident or tragedy. I would go on benders because what, what I also started to experience uh-huh. because of the drinking and the right. things that I was doing, mm-hmm. you know, I found out that I'm bipolar, manic right. depressive. Mm-hmm. And what that would do when I would drink is I would get to these spaces where I would stay up for a couple of days and mm-hmm. I'm doing all this creating and writing. Mm-hmm. And then I was just like, I'm going to New Orleans, I had friends there. And it was just this one week thing. Where's Ray? Um, and I got really drunk. I ended up in Slidell, Louisiana. I don't know how. I got a ride. Somebody gave me a ride there because I wrecked my car driving drunk. And uh. then I end up in a fight and I, I give a false name because I don't want to go to jail. I get arrested and they say, oh, you're wanted for Grand Theft Auto in Texas. I was like, no, 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 that's not my real name. My real name is such as, you know, so-and-so. And they were like, likely story. Yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, it took me, I, I was there, for, I was, and I was in jail for a week and I had to just, hey, listen, I'm telling you, you know what I'm saying? Here's yeah. my name, here's my address, yeah. here's my parents, you know? Uh-huh. So then at that point, it starts to get serious. They're like, you know, you're going to rehab, you're, you're doing these different things. What helped was, is my parents, they cut me off. They were just like, you know, you're on your own. It just got so bad uh-huh. where I was losing material things. Mm-hmm. And this group of people that I'm hanging around, 
you know, when that, that golden ticket is taken away. They were just like, oh, you're not buying this time? Okay, well, you know, and I got a rude awakening. And, yeah. and so I ended up at a treatment center that is not the most glamorous at all. And there were people there that would talk to you very recklessly and would tell you, you know, you're going to die. Yeah. And there were people dying. This is a deadly disease. And I'm very clear how lucky I was on multiple occasions, you know, mm. not, not to mention dying, you know, in a, in a car wreck. How many treatment centers from the first one you went to until the one, the last one had you gone to? At least six. You went to six treatment centers. So my parents moved to San Diego. My father went to start another uh, company out there. I went out, I went to an NA treatment center. Eventually, I don't think that there were any wasted treatment centers because when I finally got sober, like all those experiences, it started to, it clicked. Yeah. Because at first I could hear what you guys, you know, I didn't understand what you guys were talking about. Were you just dismissing it the whole time? So you get out of a treatment center, you go back to AA, you slip. You go to another treatment center, you get out, you go to AA, you slip. What were you thinking and feeling as you kept going back to AA after each one of those treatment centers? Mm -hmm. Was it not for you? Were they wrong? And you were right. What, what was the thinking that was behind it's all that? I think that it changed over time. It started with, I don't belong here. Okay. I'm not like these people. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be here. Mm -hmm. And then another consequence. Because the message never changes. You know what I'm saying? Like the message stays the same. And so what I'm doing as I'm hearing the message is that I'm, I'm looking for all the differences and not the similarities. Okay. Yeah. So then it's that, you know, I don't like these people. You know what I'm saying? Maybe I do need to stop. Maybe I need to change because it was still that same obsession is that I just need to eliminate this. Were you seeing the same AA people each time you went back to AA or was it different people every time? So were there any people able to follow you? In my first times where I had to be there, I was not establishing relationships okay. with people. Yeah, like I, I was it. not one of those people that was there and I'm, you know, I'm ready. You didn't want to be there. No, not at all. I was not calling, you know, there were people mm -hmm. that called me, um, but I was not a part of it. You know, so I go out to California and, and then I end up staying to live in California. In San Diego. In San Diego, in Del Mar. Is this after your parents cut you off? They cut me off and then I, I said, I'll come out there and go to treatment. And so that got me back into so you, to decent graces. So you got uncut off. Uncut I get off. It. All right. So I'm there and I'm going to meetings and, um, and there are all these, you know, amazing people that are in recovery and mm -hmm. I'm sharing and I've gone a couple of times without the work in the steps and the spiritual awakening and accountability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I believe what the big book says is that without a God, yeah, I, I don't have any defense against the first drink. Right. So I'm trying to stay sober. I'm trying to stay out of trouble. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm going yeah. to meetings. It was it was a six month thing. I, I still have never worked the steps yet. Okay, you were still you were sober. Did you get a sponsor each time? Not no, at all. not at all. Oh my god, I was that I was that was so reprehensible. At first, it, and it still was. To be honest, Howard, I didn't want to get sober. Yeah, I get and, it. And I and and I know now. You know, my disease did not want to do the things that were going to get me sober. So I go back out and a lot of dangerous stuff. These guys are drug dealers, actually, yeah. in, in, in California. Mm -hmm. I had a gun pulled on me. And I think this was my turning point. I'm hanging out, and I remember the night. I drank 20 Heinekens over the course of that night. And usually I was a pretty good drunk driver. This was one of those nights I didn't know I was going to make it home. Mm -hmm. I get into – I get home, mm -hmm. and some kind of way I fall in my bathtub, and I cut my back mm -hmm. from – probably the top of the shoulder blade down almost to the middle of the back. And uh -huh. there's all this blood. And I remember coming to and the, the disgust with which the doctor was looking me at. He's just like, you should be paralyzed or dead. My blood alcohol was something obnoxious. Uh -huh. 
And he just is like, you, you need help. Hmm. And there were my parents sitting there looking at me. And I wish I could tell you, Howard, that that's when I got sober, but it's hmm. not. For the first time, decided that alcohol was my problem. So I stopped drinking alcohol. Wow. So after all that, after all the treatment centers, mm-hmm. after all the AA meetings, after everything else, that was your moment of reckoning. Well, I don't think you heard the whole part of what I said. I said that I needed to stop drinking alcohol. Okay. There yeah. were other substances that, that came from the earth that oh, God put here for you I and I. That, yeah. Yeah. That, you yeah. know, so that was my problem. That's was, an old story too. Alcohol. <laughs> and so what happened was, my father had a friend that, that owned, uh, he was a franchise owner for a mm-hmm. restaurant. And I became friends with his son and his son had his own like, restaurant. And I was just like, I could do that. I was just like, listen, I'll put money into, you know, if you help me start a business, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And he said, if you can stay out of trouble for a year, I'll entertain it. And that's the closest I came to using successfully. You know what I'm saying? Like I yeah. was monitoring my, right. you know, what I smoked and, and, and I wasn't, I didn't drink mm-hmm. the whole year. And sure enough, you know, I set it up to where, and when it was a done deal, it was time to celebrate. I, I had friends that I knew, and we took some pills. We went to Vegas, mm-hmm. started drinking again, mm-hmm. and my dad was just like, I'm done. The only help I have for you is rehab. So you got cut off again. 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 And so at this point, I'd connected with some some nefarious people. Mm-hmm. I ended up moving in with this woman that I met uh-huh. who was an actress and a model that was actually turned out to be her side job and her main okay, job yeah. was working on Sunset Boulevard yeah, at yeah. a, uh, at a gentleman's club. Right. I get it. I'm living with her and it was Easter and I'd been cut off and hadn't talked to the family in about six months. And they mm-hmm. were just like, you know, they called and they were like, you know, we love you, blah, blah, blah. I was like, whatever. But I hung up the phone and I just looked around at my environment. I looked at her and I looked at what we were doing. And by the, you know, she was, she'd, she'd been taking pain pills. Right. Um, and, and I'd started doing that. Mm-hmm. And I remember I made the decision. He's like, you know what? I'm sick of this. Because that's what he told me. He's like, the only help I have for you is rehab. Hmm. So you were back to drinking. You were taking drugs. You're living with this model slash dancer, whatever, at the time. Take notice of the environment that you're living or, let's say, dying in. Exactly. And we had a close family. Like, they were calling just to, you know, like, we love you. And it was partly that, but it was also that I was sick of it. Yeah. I was like, the, what I saw was where I kept ending up, the kind of people yeah. I kept ending up the around. The consequences, right. And I felt this darkness. You know, I just mm-hmm. felt this, you know, the people that I, I kept putting myself in proximity to this real, real danger. It was so dark, spiritually dark, but mm-hmm. also... I really feared going to jail because of what these other people were doing. And right. I just know that I would not have done well in mm. jail in California. Right, right, right. I get that. And so that was a part of it. But it was really, it was a decision for the first time that no one's going to make me go to rehab. It's like, I want to go to, you know, it's like, so I drive down to this place. So this is what God did for me. And this is what was required. It was this treatment center. It was in the mountains bef- between San Diego and Mexico. Mm-hmm. And it was on this big ranch. And to get back to San Diego or civilization, like it was a dice roll if yeah. you were going to make it back walking. <laughs> right. right. So I'm yeah. up here in this place. Yeah. Um, and I remember driving down there. And of course, I had to get as low as, as I could on sure. the way there. I present there, you know, wasted, but, but incurred. I'm like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. And then I remember getting in there. And everything crashed on my head. I realized what I'd done, how I messed this opportunity up. And, and, and I was at the jumping off point, Howard, because as much as I knew I needed it, I just didn't think it was in me because I'd tried before. 
Like huh. I had made earnest attempts to stop. Every time you stopped, did you have a sense that you were going to do it again? Not necessarily. Like right. Towards the end, you know, there were times where I really gave recovery a shot. And I, get I really it. was sober and I was going to meetings and I had friends. The thing was, I never got a sponsor and I never worked the steps. So you go out to this place in the mountains. Yep. Did you have to detox? I had to detox. And after detox, I entered into this, this suicidal depression because oh. what it was was I, I, I can't. It was really like that. I had experienced that powerlessness before where right. I had tried to stop and mm-hmm. could not not use. Right. So now the combination of look what I squandered. I had this opportunity to right. open this yeah. business. Right. You know, I had rehabilitated my image with my father. I'd right. stayed out of trouble. The big book talks about, you know, at, we get tight at the exact wrong time. Right. You know, whenever we need to show up for something. <laughs> yeah. And so I've done it again. And I was like, what makes me think that I can, you know, what's, what's going to be different? What yeah. is going to change in this pattern? And so I prayed this prayer. God, give me some answers or let me go. Let me go, meaning? Let me die. Yeah, just put me out of my misery, basically. And it was as clear as this. You have to stop. And for whatever reason, in that moment, all the old treatment, the book, the things, you know, this one or two people would say to me, because the whole time there was always somebody like in a meeting that would kind of see, you know, like, right. and they would try and they would give me these nuggets of wisdom. And then they finally be like, well, you know, if you're not going to do it, I can't So all that you. came back to you? In an instant. And I went from, literally, I went from almost being catatonic, not wanting to participate in groups, not wanting to come out of my uh-huh. room to where I get it. I was like, I'm leading meetings, you know what I'm saying? And I'm, and it was, it was truly remarkable. So you made a big turnaround. How long were you in at that place? About a week. It was about a week to, and that's when I'm, you know, it, it, the, the switch kind of flipped. And then I went, you know, I literally st- I started leading meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there was a person there, there was a man there that took the time to say this, you need to do these steps. And it was a place to where you had to do the steps. Right. To so get for out. the first time, I muscled through and it was very mm-hmm. half-assed. I mm-hmm. did a four-step mm-hmm. because that was my thing. I, I, I did the one, two, three shuffle. Right. I could see that I was powerless. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I, yeah. I would admit yeah. to some unmanageability. Yeah. I believed in God mm-hmm. and I could see it in you. I could, you know, it was, yeah. I could see that it was working. I could hear your stories right. and I could see that other people. So I, I wasn't close to it. And then I would, I would read the part about the selfishness and self-centeredness on page 62, and I identified the actor. And, you know, I'd, I'd do a third-step prayer. But you wouldn't do the work of the fourth step? Absolutely not. So you started writing at this point? So I had, yeah, I was forced to in forced this treatment to. center. Okay. Right? And so then this man is started, so, so this is the first time he didn't become my official sponsor. Right. But he was somebody that I identified with enough to when I got out of treatment, mm-hmm. I would go see him. I'm still going to meetings. Wow. Um, I had an issue that I had a rehab romance mm-hmm. that kind of pulled me away a little bit mm. from meetings, but this is what saved me. Every summer we went on a cruise, mm-hmm. right? And some of my worst acting out had been on a cruise. Mm. All the drinks are paid for, oh, yeah. you know, like, and, and so, I mean, just public embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for the first time I didn't want to go. I mm. was terrified to go on this cruise. So... Having a guy that was just acting as a temporary sponsor, mm-hmm. it was the first time I was able to say, man, I'm, I don't know if I can go do this. Mm-hmm. And what he said was, they have meetings on the boat. It was the first time somebody was able to be there for me mm-hmm. to book in something like mm-hmm. that. And I went and I was terrified, but I stayed sober. 
Were there actual meetings? Or, or there are actually meetings on the boat. So you yeah. actually were able to go to meetings. Yeah, because I've, I've known a number of people who've gone on cruises where they went to that meeting. There was nobody there. I did. That happened to me. I went on a cruise. That happened one day. Uh, it was in a piano room. I went, uh-huh. I sat, and I read the big book for that oh, whole hour. That's cool. I read how it works. Uh-huh. The next, and I just, I showed up the next day yeah. doing the same thing, and I'm just kind of reading, and this guy pokes his head in, and he was just like, is this an AA meeting? I was like, it is now. <laughs> and great. he's like, thank God, I'm about to kill my kids. So oh, wow. I'm con- firmly convinced that this is a divinely inspired program. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. Now, are we at 1993 by this point? We're closer to 2000. So 93 was the beginning of the failed attempts. And by the time you get to 2000, you've had this awakening in the mountains. You've asked God for help. You've turned to another human being for help and advice. You've started to work a fourth step. All of this stuff is coalescing into a basis from which you can stay sober. Unfortunately, I would still need to do some research, Howard. And when? Did, and how did that happen? To me, this is the most important part of my story. After we get back from this cruise, unexpectedly, my father calls me over to his house. He said, listen, these people from this franchise, they called me and they said, listen, there's an opportunity in Houston. It's a can't lose. You know what I'm uh-huh. saying? Would you consider? Yeah. So my dad tells me, he says, tell me these different things. I don't think you're going to stay sober, but I need to ask, can you stay sober? <laughs> you know, man, what am I supposed yeah, to say, yeah, right? right? I was right. like, yeah, I think I can. I went on the cruise, right? At yeah. this point, I do feel like I'm good, right? And how long have you been sober at that point? Probably eight months. I'm, I'm going to meetings, I'm seeking out meetings, and then lo and behold, we go and meet with these people, and it's a green light. We're moving back to Houston. Now, they tell you not to... Make any, Make major, any change. major changes, right? right. So don't, and so at eight months sober, moved back to Houston. Mm-hmm. I was home for three months. And sure enough, there's this huge opportunity unfolding. And I'm this success story. It's just like, wow, he was all this wasted potential. And now he's sober. I'm going, mm-hmm. I'm going to meetings. Right. And I'm doing these different things. And then I decided. I was like, you know what? I want to be married before I do this. <laughs> oh, because I just, you know what I'm saying? I don't yeah, want to. Yeah, yeah. How will I know whether someone really cares about me if I become this oh, entrepreneur? Geez. Yeah. And I was trying to fix this old relationship with an ex. Uh-huh. And she just wasn't moving on my timetable. And I remember I was like, you know what? Screw it. And I went out and I met my ex-wife that night. <laughs> and so I was really good at, at the business that we were in. And I'm really. And so I proposed to her the day we opened my first store. Uh-huh. We did so well yeah. that they offered to sell us all of their interest in the city. And so one year of sobriety, within one year of sobriety, I went from one store to 10. Here's what happened is I'm going to meetings, but I never got a sponsor here. All these things are happening. I got the house. I got married. Uh-huh. Um, eventually had a son. Yeah. Got the Mercedes and I'm going to church. This is um, 2002, 2003. I was dry for three years. I turning back into an asshole. 
I'm really thinking highly of myself. Had you convinced yourself that church was the answer? As long as I keep it out of my body. As long as I don't take the first oh, drink. Absolutely. It didn't have anything to do, you know, you saying. You had taken back. The, exactly. Right, and, I and, 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 and I was involved. I not only was involved right. with church, but I was involved with, you know, the youth stuff. I yeah. was a mentor. Yeah. I was going to speak at schools. Yeah. And to the outside world, I'm this success story. I'm sending people to AA. Right. Like right. people are calling me, you know, hey, I got somebody that needs to get sober and I'm sending. And I had this relationship with this basketball player and I would see him almost every week. And I remember one day he asked me how my recovery was. And I was like, oh, I'm good, you know, like, but I haven't been to any meetings. And what happened was I was in an environment with entertainers and pro athletes. Yeah, a dangerous place to be. And, you know, the big book says we can be, we can go anywhere. Yeah, if, if we're there's in fit, business, if but, we're but, in a fit spiritual condition. And that's condition. what it was. Is I'm, I'm rationalizing the business aspect of it, but I'm nowhere near in fit spiritual condition. Here's what happened. I had an accident. I fell playing basketball. I broke the biggest little bone in my wrist almost in half. And they had to go in and put a pin in that big bone. And it's some of the most, the worst pain that I've been in. It was a, a long nagging injury yeah. that I uh-huh. ended up having to get more help from. Yeah. So I got prescribed the, the, the hard stuff, the, like, you know, the pain pills. Yeah. No sponsor, no accountability, no meetings. And that I, that I did okay with it through the first part of it. And the day came that I lied to the doctor about my pain level. I knew it maybe wasn't that smart, you know, but nothing happened. This is the uh, one of the ugly parts about this disease. Uh-huh. I'm elevating in my career. We got invited to this concert, you know, mm-hmm. and one of my guests are this major magazine editor uh-huh. and a, a well-known big-time rapper. And I'd been around people drinking, smoking, strip club. I'd been in that environment and been okay. And that night, they were smoking. I was just like... uh let me let me have some of that. That night, that was the night that I chose. Was your wife in the room? She was she was there, and 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 as I came to meet her to go to this event, she was like, "Are you high?" And and I lied. I was like, "Oh, I was just I was in the room, right?" But I remember how I felt at that event. Were you still doing the narcotic pain relievers at this point? No, I, I had been able to kind of move away from that. And you hadn't started drinking again yet. In fact, I never drank again, Howard. So the joint was being passed around. You decided, yeah, me yes. too. It was a very strange night and it was a strange conversation right. with my wife. Right. But, but I went home and it, in my yeah. mind, I was like, that wasn't smart. Yeah. And I used to go to Vegas twice a year mm-hmm. for, for trade shows. Something similar happens there. And that, when I was going on that trip, I had the intention that I was going to find it. Because in my mind, what my disease, what I was convinced, well, that's not really using. And it sounds crazy and it sounds stupid, but it was just like, yeah, it was just like, you know, Bob Marley did it, you know, like the spiritual thing and, and, and all, and, and, and I'm not doing it all the time. I'm doing it, you know, every blue moon and I'm not drinking. Yeah. And all this other good stuff is going on. So as long as you're not drinking. Eventually. And it didn't take more than three, maybe three months. It went from that to where I started to do it every day. Oh, I wow. was seeking out and I was around these entertainers and these different yeah. people. And I'm doing it clandestinely and privately, like in my backyard. And I've got kids. Yeah. And So your alcoholism had reignited as... And I'm, I'm doing that alcoholically the way right. that I used to do the drinking. The bottom was, I used to take pride in that my son had never seen me drunk. And I went to, to, to score uh-huh. with him in the car. There was a lot of shame as far as that was concerned. I left it out and my wife saw it. You know, she read me the riot act. And by now, things are starting to fall apart. Yeah. Bad decisions are being made with business 
arguments with my father, arguments with different people. And How about I'm, your marriage? Marriage was having issues as well because I'm going to all these places. Yeah, yeah. And I'm around these different people, and that is not done in a vacuum. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's it's another version of what I used to do when I was finding the losers, or I was you know I was hanging around these different people. Um, and it's easy to justify when you're saying, "Look at all the material success I have. Look at the business. Look at all the important people I know. Look at all the politicking that I'm able to do, and, you know, to get my way when I want it." And yet, church, church, yeah. yeah. Look, look around, doing the kids, it. right, you know, going right. Back, yeah. So there's plenty of rationalizing that's going on to support. So it sounds like that's what, what was going on. And I was on the rise, like in business, you yeah. know, to be on in the circles that I was so in. So why stop? That my argument to her, like that, I was able to sell her on yeah. that exact concept. I get it. Uh-huh. I was just like, you know, this is stress relief. This yeah, is, yeah, yeah. And I'm not drinking. Those are all the things that we say. And what I said at a certain point, I lost the grip of it. And mm. some of the decisions that I started to make. So, so what was happening was your addiction and the using was informing your decision making. Oh, and you're still smoking. You're still at that point. Yeah, not yeah, at that yeah. point. But I, I feel like I'm doing it successfully because I'm still not drinking. And that's what right. I do as an alcoholic because right. I rationalize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe it, I'm still going to argue you that right. that's not using at that right. point. Yeah, but I'm also sharing with you I'm not drinking. Right. I own this business. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a all, father. I'm yeah. doing all these other different yeah. things. Plenty of reasons. And also, being dry, I turn back into an asshole. Uh-huh. Everything that's on page 62 yeah. and 63, uh-huh. I'm, you know, selfish, self-centered. Even, you know, yeah. I can be modest and self-sacrificing, right? right. Mm-hmm. Trying to make the play suit me. Right. But I'm stepping on the toes of my fellows and they retaliate. Yeah. It got to a point to where I told my wife that I was done. In my mind. Right. I feel like I'm a step away from going to this different level. And, and I'm really good at what I was doing, not realizing that it was all about to fall apart. Uh-huh. Thank God she went to my mother and told her that I was smoking weed again. And my mother was, you know, she never did Al-Anon, but she did, you know, she understood all the concepts. Uh-huh. Um, and so she called and she put a, a note that someone can call and say, hey, I have a person that I think is suicidal or is... Right. Mentally unstable. You can get committed. Yes. I left the house. I went to stay with a friend and I was in the parking lot waiting for a to-go order. I was playing loud music mm-hmm. and a cop comes over. He calls for backup and then becomes this argument. Uh-huh. And I think I'm going to jail. Mm. And all of a sudden this car shows up, white unmarked car. Uh-huh. And it says, you know, and, and they talk to the cop and then the cop pulls me out and puts me in this car. And I was like, where are you guys taking me? I was, you know, had no clue. Uh-huh. And he was just like, don't worry, you're not in trouble. And we pulled up at a treatment center. Gosh. And so now I, I'm I'm pissed off. I'm right, like, right. You know, my mom, da, da, da. And it was in this treatment center. And I'm in the room where you can't, you know, they take your shoelaces yeah, and your yeah, belt. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'm not even on the, the, right. the rehab floor. I got the news that we were going to have to sell the whole business and that we were going to probably lose our house because we'd put our house up as collateral. As that washed over me. I said, maybe it's time. I, that's when I lobbied. I want to get up to the to the treatment floor. Hmm. I was like, I'm 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 done. I, I I know where I need to go. So what was that decision and that prayer that you had made previously? How did it become exclusionary to the? I mean, here you are again in a treatment center. You'd prayed once before to be relieved 
did you had you compartmentalized your alcoholism so fully that you believe that God would take care of that? Don't worry about anything else. I still thought I was stopped, Howard. You thought you were stopped, even though you were yeah, I, doing I thought, a different I, substance. I thought I was stopped, but the answer is that it's not about just not using. For right. me, there are three sides of the recovery triangle. Absolutely. There's the service, the unity, and the recovery. Right. Right. And the not using is a, you know, it's a small portion of the recovery. Yeah. The unity, if I don't go to meetings, I won't stay sober. Right. I, I can stay sober if I don't do service, but I'm not truly in recovery. Right. True. And for me, recovery is working the steps, mm-hmm. all 12 steps with a sponsor and then sponsoring other people. I wasn't doing half. I wasn't doing most of that. I think I'm not putting stuff in my body, but I clearly am. And they had people that would come onto the floor, mm-hmm. recovered alcoholics, bring a meeting. Another hour later, they would have a meeting downstairs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm assuming that there's, there's, there's 12 steps, there's a cell. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, yeah, yeah. and they didn't have to sell me anything. Yeah, you and were, I was just like, you're that's ready. me. You know what I'm saying? They're, yeah. Whatever it was that they were reading, uh-huh. and I'm telling my story, and they were like, why don't you come down to downstairs? And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And at that, that was the first time that I was willing, and what was probably the, you know, the death blow was having my son who adored me at that time, him being brought in there and him just losing it because he's having to leave and I'm not going with him. How old was he? Maybe three or four. Wow, that's a drag. I wanted what I thought I had and I didn't. You yeah. know what I'm saying? I thought that I had sobriety. I thought that I had recovery. Yeah, that's interesting. And what it opened up to was for the first time I was open to the concept of having a sponsor. Huh. Because that's really what was the, the, the fatal flaw. That was the missing link. And now I tell people all the time, I had a fool for a sponsor because I was my sponsor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that. <laughs> and I get, the yeah. treatment center that I was at, they, they would bring us to, to, to one of the clubs. Right. So these are, two, I started going to these two different clubs. One club was more salt of the earth. Right. The other one was, yeah. And, and I got a lot out of both. I ended up feeling, I ended up finding more of a home. Right. At this, at this one club. Right. That was, um, amazing recovery, uh-huh. um, some dysfunction. Yeah. And, but, but it was just, it was intense. Yeah. But there were these people, there were people in there, they had something called a high sobriety meeting. Right. And it was, you had to be 10 years sober or more. Mm-hmm. And so for the first time, like I was envious, I was like, man, I want to be one of those people because I wasn't allowed in the high yeah, sobriety yeah, meeting. Uh-huh. Right. There were people there that would eventually be there to this day. They're still right. friends of mine. Right. Guys that are part of the, you know, this, the, the big noon meeting. Yeah. I remember watching some of those guys get, you know, guy got a 90 day chip and yeah. I was just like, wow, you've been sober. You know, I, I still did not want to be there necessarily because as social as I was, I would sometimes come 15 minutes late and leave early. But, but, but this time. I'm looking for a sponsor. And you would have thought, you know, I was trying to meet my wife looking for a sponsor. Yeah, like I'm yeah. sitting listening. And yeah. and then I went up to some of these, you know, titans in the room. Yeah. And there were a couple guys that told me no. And, and so then, I, you know, I wanted to get you know, my mind is just like, well, you know, well, screw these people. But the problem was, is I was desperate because remember, I've lost so much. I lost this business and I'm going yeah. through the process of liquidating. And right, right, right. We had, you know, we lost our house. I lost mm-hmm. the house. What would always happen is I would come back to AA and get all those things back. And, and so then that's the other thing. At that point, my wife decided that she was done. I moved back to my parents' house. Wow. So now I'm literally at the doorsteps of AA, desperate. Yeah. And I have the gift of desperation. And I'm assuming that I'm going to get those things back. 
And what happened was, is I got my soul back, truly got my life back. So you found yourself a sponsor. I asked a guy named Cedric W. And it was, it was because of what I heard him share. And that's really, to me, what the second step is about. Uh-huh. Is I came to believe that I could be restored to sanity because of what I heard in his story. And the person that I saw him today, and his grand sponsor is a guy named Tom B. And so it's Tom B., Cedric W., and I. And I'm tagging along with them. And, you know, Tom's been sober forever and knows everybody. And so mm-hmm. they're bringing me to this meeting and to that meeting. One of the things about Cedric was that he would share and he would rattle off these pages and, and passages in the big book, right? And that, that fascinated me. And the things that he would point out, he would show me these things in the big book that I'd read before, but I had not, it had not really hit home. So I came to him and I was just like, I got to work the steps. I got to do a four step because this is my problem. Yeah. And I do a one, two, three. So I'm ready to do it. Let's, let's do one, uh-huh. two, and three this weekend. Yeah. And he slow walked me. He was just like, you know, I'm sponsoring you. Uh-huh. You're not sponsoring you. So I had me do a first step and do all this work, you know, for like a couple of weeks. You finally do the second step. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. All this work, all this work. Third step, do all this work. And then we went and prayed publicly. So I'm expecting the same thing on the fourth step. He said, all right. I want you to go get Red Bull, some no-dos, right. whatever it is that you need. And I want you to go home and I want you to, to write until you finish. Right. Stay up all night and do mm-hmm. your four step. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. And I sat and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And, you know, and I did. It's a hustle. The four step is a hustle. It's like, who are you resentful at? Yeah. Yeah. And what did they do? Pfft. Easy. This person, my dad, you know, yeah. my yeah. ex-wife and. What did they do? She did this. They did this. This is how it affected. And then he, he he's then like, okay, there's another card. Yeah. You know I'm saying you write, he showed me on the book. It says, you know, disregarding the other person entirely. Right. You know, we looked at where we had been at fault. Yeah. And as I started to do that exercise, it became clear that I am the author of my troubles. Yeah. I step on the toes of my fellow. It was this epiphany. And as you know, it's part of the manic energy of being up all night as well, more than likely. But I saw it so clearly. But in between that and meeting with him the next day, yeah. as soon as the sun came up, I'm texting my wife and I'm call- ex-wife and I'm calling her. We're still you married still at the time. You stopped smoking by this I'm sober. point? Yeah, no, I'm sober. You're completely sober. Completely sober. So I've been sober maybe three months. I had a slip. Six months probably of, of being sober. I went on a trip, business trip. Somebody had some, I didn't have a defense. Right. And then I came back and I, and I fessed up. It was the first time that I'd been accountable. And I was so there like, was that slip that brings yes. us up to 2009. Correct. Which so is your sobriety day. First part of 2009. And, and now three months into the summer. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so I'm living, I'm out of the house. Right. And I call my ex-wife and I was like, I, we, I can fix it now. Because I, I, I'm going to yeah. tell her. I was just like, I, I was wrong. Uh-huh. And so I called her, she met me and there's this, you know, the acrimony is there, but I'm, right. I'm, I'm telling her how it was my fault and right. I didn't do this. And if I had only done that and now I'm good and I'm going to stay sober and we can fix it. Was this meant as an amends or? Yes, it was a, it was a premature amends. It okay. was a premature amends. So you didn't, you didn't clear it with your sponsor. Oh, absolutely not. I get it. Those often go wrong. Exactly. They? Right. Yeah. And so then, but what would have, what became clear in my mind, I'm assuming that it was going to fix. But in that conversation, I could see in her tone and where she was, I was just like, it's not. Yeah. And in front of her, my heart broke. And, and in front of her in a parking lot, I just started bawling because that the reality kicked in of what had happened. Right. So much so, you know, that she felt the need to come and hug me and be like, you know, God's going to work it out, whatever it was. Uh-huh. And I got in my car and I drove to Starbucks, the same place where my car had caught on fire. Right. Uh-huh. 
and I did my fifth step with Cedric through tears. And did just, you tell him what just had oh, happened? Yeah. 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 And I read, you know, I read my part with her and all these different things. And what he told me was like, you have to forgive these people. You have to let go of this resentment. From that point, you know, it took time uh-huh. and I ended up having to finish the steps with another person. Um, because there was some, there were some personal things that that sponsor went through. Right. But the thing in my life that I'm proud of is that I finished the 12 steps. I remember maybe after the ninth step, my experience was this. The big book talks about the 10th step promises that mm-hmm. all the promises say you will be amazed before we're halfway through. Right. And what it is, is that halfway through the ninth step, you know, like going through mm-hmm. the first eight steps, yeah. the rubber meets the rope for me. And as I started to do those ninth step amends, that's when I started to change yeah. in a visceral way. Yeah. And it was then that, that I was going, I was still angry at her. Like I still had this resentment with yeah. towards my ex-wife because right. of what was going on with my son. And now may be the time for you to start sponsoring people because huh. I was in a bad place. Yeah. In about five minutes, this guy walked up to me and asked me to sponsor him. That is how I learned how this program really truly works like when I started to sponsor this other person. So that was your 12th step. And I saw the change in him. It changed me. I still needed to finish the steps right. with another sponsor. And the reason why I feel like God did that was that person was able to get me to understand I have two key problems as, a, as an alcoholic. I'm selfish and self-centered. Right. Right. And I'm, I'm in self-will. I'm not yeah. in God's will. Right. And it's these resentments. Resentments block me from the sunlight of the spirit. Yeah. And he was able to allow me to see that that's what I was doing with my with my ex-wife. So you started working with this guy even before you had finished the 12 steps. Right. And it, it was transformative. And that person, that first sponsee finished all 12 steps. Cool. Now, that's not always been the case with my sponsees. Is he, is he still sober? He's still sober. Is he sponsoring other men? He has sponsored other men. So so you get to see yourself in those men too, don't you? And Exactly. And, and that yeah. was so radical as a concept for yeah. me, for somebody that didn't want to work this program. And so... As I got into recovery, mm-hmm. we're talking about the 12 years between 2009 and today. Yes. So I started to, to get involved, not just in the rooms, but starting to go to coffee after. And, um, I started, to, I developed, a, you know, a crew of people and I had litter mates mm-hmm. and I have people that to this day, I'm, we still get together from time to time. My recovery evolved. I stopped looking at it as a social event and mm-hmm. I started looking at it as something I needed. Like medicine. So I started to go to the Thursday meeting and now I'm around men and now I'm around people to where there's more recovery than disease in the rooms. There are more shares about solution than there are, you know, there's meetings would get hijacked sometimes where there's just not that much good recovery. Now yeah. I'm seeking out good recovery. I'm starting to be of service. I'm secretarying, you know, like I'm, people know who I am. And if I'm not there, I'm missed. Yeah. And, um, and I eventually, I, I correlated if I stop going to meetings for more than like two weeks, I'll get squirrely. I'll start to get dry again. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just fortunate that I, I stayed around long enough, you know, to get the sponsor, to work all the steps and to start, you know, to start sponsoring other people. As you stick around the meetings and stay sober, the men around you are staying sober. And it moves from being a very problem-oriented group of people into a very solution-oriented group of people yeah. over time. And that's exactly, and, and, and I think that when I came into the noon Thursday meeting, yeah. right, at that point, I, as I got to maybe three, four years, mm-hmm. I have more sobriety than most of the people at some of the 
younger meetings or, or social meetings, so to speak. But in this room, I felt like a newcomer almost. And then I remember you asking me to come eat yeah. at a restaurant yeah. and I always had an excuse. Yeah, you and, did. And I was just like, yeah, I can't, you know, this yeah. and that, I'm working, I got to do this. Yeah. And I remember there was one day that for whatever reason, I was just like, okay, I'll go. Yeah. It just seems so benign, you know, it just seems like yeah. such a trite activity, but you know, and you got 30, 40 guys that yeah. just, you know, taking over a whole table, you know, and it was, it's, it was awkward for me at first. Yeah. I realized that, you know, guys are all sober this long. This is what they do. Yeah. You know, guys hanging out and, and then the, the ability to rally towards the newcomer. And that always happened at those luncheons. Exactly. You know, there's nothing like breaking bread with another man to really solidify the relationship that is present within the meeting. But within the meeting, you know, you're seeing them within the meeting environment. When you see them eating dinner or lunch out in public. It's totally different. You may not even be talking about necessarily recovery things, but oh, yeah. you're, you're talking about different things with recovered people. You're living life in recovery. You're getting to see that. You've talked about a number of the gifts now with sponsorship, being able to get out of yourself to become more part of the group. But I know you've also faced a few very difficult things. Yeah. And I wondered if you could speak to those. And I'm glad you did that because to me, it's the most important thing that I have to remember about recovery. I had been sober nine years, not doing it perfectly by any means, but you know, being of service, showing up to meetings, sponsoring people. And I, I had started eating healthier and started exercising and being very mm -hmm. active. And, and, and I was on the rise in some of the things that I was doing. Sure. Unexpectedly, I got diagnosed with cancer. Mm. I'd had something that, that was, it didn't feel right or look right on my neck. I was operating under this terrible premise that, well, I don't want to know. It's a very foolish concept, but it's just like... It's not know, unusual, though. It's this kind of a vagueness. It was just yeah. like, I just don't want to know. Because yeah. So anyway, I find this out. It's very advanced. You know, I caught it just in time. Wow. But the message that I'm receiving when I got this diagnosis is it's very spread. 20 plus tumors in my neck, several in my chest. It's, it was a different kind of cancer. It was lymphoma. So oh. it spreads first and then it starts acting like other oh, okay. cancers. So yeah. it's almost always fatal mm. because people find out, you know, kind of like after the fact. And I had these two big tumors in my abdomen. Mm -hmm. And so the message that I got was, yeah, it's very bad. You're going to have to start, you know, this very hard chemo that you've mm -hmm. seen and heard about. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to do it now. Mm. And, um, so there was a two-week stretch where we got the biopsy, I took a biopsy mm -hmm. and was waiting for the results. And so I didn't want to share with other people yeah. because I just, I didn't have the answers. So I was mm -hmm. like, let me wait until I find out. Right. So there's this two-week stretch. It's just very anxious. Mm -hmm. And then we get, I get the news and I go to a regular meeting that I go to on Sunday nights and I shared in a meeting. Hmm. That, you know, I was, I've been diagnosed and this and that. And it was in my share that I realized, you know what? I, drinking had not even crossed my mind. It literally had not, it had not presented as an option or a solution. And in the past, that would have been the first thing, you know, it would have, it would have been a license to go out. In fact, mm -hmm. that was one of my contingencies. When I came in, you know, yeah. it's always like, how am I going to go to a wedding? And not drink. How am I going to go to a football game? If I get cancer, because Howard, I had people that it wasn't the cancer that killed them. It was the chemo. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. I was just like, I'll never do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, it was an 18-month treatment. Wow. Um, you know, I stayed sober. I had to take medicine 
that I was able to check in with a sponsor and it terrified me to do it, it took my recovery to another level. The seeds were planted. I, I did my part of my treatment in California. And I remember being out there and I hadn't been to a meeting in like a week. And I, I called a fellow here that I got sober with. And I said, hey, I need a meeting. Within 30 minutes, she had connected me with someone and I was at a meeting. Wow. I went to that meeting and they said, you need to go to this meeting. Mm. And I went to this meeting and I said, you need to go to this meeting. And then someone said, you need to go to this men's meeting. And it mirrored the Thursday meeting so wow. much. So it was so uncanny. And mm -hmm. these guys were so welcoming. My recovery has never been stronger. The whole experience with you and I and Zoom yeah. and being kind of pressed to mm -hmm. survive yeah. has been some of the most rewarding in my entire recovery journey, you know, that we we were a band of brothers, you know, putting together these Zoom meetings yeah. and just kind of making do and then going to, you know, different parts of the world and different parts of the country. I have a service commitment at the same LA meeting yeah. that I picked up my, yeah. you know, nine-year uh, chip. Now, when you came back to Houston to our men's meeting and talking about the cancer and the cool thing about the way you shared about it was it really opened it up and started to demystify it and, and started to destigmatize it, which was so important because there are so many men that are dealing with the same things right now. I mean, all types of different problems. And the fact that you were able to put yourself right in the middle of the Zoom meetings, setting them up using your account, going through what you went through, speaks volumes about how important service is to your sobriety. Oh, yeah. Is that a fair statement? It's very difficult to take credit for or to to receive accolades for that because that is, I will do three meetings today. Right. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and not only to provide a meeting space for people that need it. Right. But I get so much out of the service and the meetings, you know, and hearing guys that have been one of the podcast guys that you had, Bob B. I don't know that we would have heard Bob share in a meeting again. And so to have him as a part, not only part of the meeting, but, you know, to be able to lead, be able to share. Yeah. It's grown me closer to you. It's yeah. grown me closer to, you know, a lot of people in a way that I never would have anticipated. And I think now it's hard for me to picture life without recovery. It's almost impossible for me not to trip back into the right groove. Um, you know, and I have these tools without a sponsor and without the steps. I will at best just not drink. I really don't feel like I talked about God enough. The the way that, that God has used me already. It was implicit, though. I want you to know yeah. that because everything you've said today during this interview, the spirituality of the program and your connectedness with your higher power has been reflected. Even when you were talking about some of the very difficult times, mm. there was something that led you out of it that was a higher power. I agree. And, and as what guard against is mm. not to impose my higher power in meetings yeah. or in, because I know that a lot of people struggle with that. And, and it's something that I work on. You know, yeah. I'm a God guy. It's a, it's a spiritual oh, program. Yeah. yeah you've got to talk one about of the God. steps talks about alcohol. Mm -hmm. right. All the other steps, yeah. you know what I'm saying, have yeah. to do with this relationship with the power. In fact, it says that I'm beyond human aid. Oh, yeah. Is that it must come from a power greater than myself. And, yeah. and, and I, I'm grateful for, and I don't want to take for granted that I've struggled. My, my higher power has changed and evolved over my recovery. Yeah. But today... That is that is a non-existent issue. I, I, you can't make me doubt him. I know too much about him. He works through me. Um, he uses me. And he and, works through a sober, right? He, he works through a sober. And then also, this is a living 
I still get nuggets of spiritual wisdom almost every meeting. Yeah. I still see things in the big book that yeah. I didn't see. Because you're open and you're available and you're like a sponge. And I plan to continue to work the steps. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I don't graduate from this deal. I will never be cured. Yeah. I will always have this. However, it's one of the only afflictions that I know of that when treated, I'm better off. Oh yeah. Than I were, than I was. Yeah, you're a better man. It's like before. Yeah, it's like walking into a meeting and feeling one way and walking out feeling so much better, irrespective of what was said. It was just about the environment. Oh, yeah. It's about the point. it's about the God consciousness. It's about the presence. It's about give, just having an hour to be with other human beings yeah. in a non-judgmental, all-loving environment. And God speaks to me through you guys. Absolutely. In an uncanny way. I will yeah. have some issue going on that I can't figure out and I want to talk to somebody about after the meeting. And yeah. someone will share. And literally, God will speak to me in direct terms. Yeah. And say, this is, this is, my, this is my will for you. So yeah. my prayer is, God, I want what you want for me. Yeah. When you want it for me. Yeah. Because I want what I want for me when I want it for me. Well, absolutely. So the third I mean, step is I want to want what you want for me because your plans are better than mine. Right, right. And that and that little that little piece of self centeredness and self involvement and self just self yields to that kind of thing, but only when we allow it to oh, yield. Yeah. And so that's a, that's such a beautiful sentiment. It's also a great way for us to kind of wrap up here because your story is very, I think, very salient for listeners who have ever struggled with staying sober. Your story is one where a man who has been a man of privilege and enablement by his environment and by the situations around him, those things didn't work to enrich the man that's sitting here today. Amen. You had to lose, you had to suffer, you had to get to a point in your life where you were ready to check out before you got the very thing that is more valuable than any of that other stuff. Is that a safe statement? Don't quit before the miracle. Yeah. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I, I needed to fall. And yeah. it's the falling forward as opposed to falling backwards. That's yeah. the only difference. And the great thing about it is falling forward, you're going to fall into the arms of people who really do love you and care about you. I appreciate you doing this. I love you. And I'm grateful that we've had the opportunity to do this today, Ray. So I love you. I'm so glad we got to do it in person. I think God wanted that to happen. Yeah. Again, many thanks. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Ray O. for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to your fellow AAs? As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. Of course, you can subscribe to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's traditions and all general office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all podcast production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. 
This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.